So I'm thinking, as I talk to you at this time, of the, the whole area of, of um, rejecting things that God has promised for us. And there's a passage of Scripture back in the Old Testament, and it's from the book of, um, of um, Genesis, and it has to do with Esau and Jacob. And Esau um, was the oldest boy, and so therefore he was supposed to get the um, birthright, which was a very precious thing because it, it made the oldest son next to his father in authority. And he was then, after the father passed away, it was his job to share the inheritance, that's what the birthright really meant, to share that inheritance with his siblings. Didn't always work that way because sometimes they're greedy, didn't get along or whatever, and so didn't always. But in Genesis 25, 34, Esau was coming back from a hunting trip and his son Jacob was making some dinners called just some lentil stew, my translation calls it. So when Esau came on the scene, he was hungry. He hadn't ca caught anything. So he said to, to Jacob, would you give me some of that stew? Because he said, I'm going to die. So what good is my birthright if I die? So Jacob said, well, you trade me your birthright for a bowl of stew. And Esau was stupid enough to do it. You don't die with just missing one meal. But he thought he was going to. And so he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup. And of course, it says in verse 34, he ate and drank. He ate bread. He ate some lentil stew. Lentil stew. He got up and left. And then it says Esau despised his birthright. Now, I want to bring that into a place where we recognize that we have an older brother, that's Jesus, who wants to share with us the inheritance. And he is not selfish or greedy. He wants desperately to share with us. But you see, Esau despised his birthright. And I can't help but think about the fact that if we don't take advantage of what Jesus is wanting to offer us as a result of his father giving it to him. If we don't take advantage of that, if we live in kind of a light attitude towards the whole thing that it's not really important, or I'll make things go my own way, I'll look after myself, <clears throat> we despise the birthright. Of our, of our older brother Jesus and his desire to share it with us. Esau's problem was he was living for the moment. And that's true of so many of us. We don't look ahead to eternity, to what um, heaven is like or what hell far is like. We live for the moment. And as, as we live for the moment, we neglect the most important thing and that is where we'll be sometime later. Each one of you really should ask yourself, 
the way I am living right now, where will I be a hundred years from now? Some of you, if you're older, it might only be 50 years from now. But we need to ask ourselves the question, where will I be? If we're only living for the moment, we don't care about where we're going. We're going to hope that it turns out. But to say hope that it turns out without Jesus as our older brother is foolish hope. It's wishful dreaming. That's what it's about. And so we need to be people that we look at the birthright that's been given to our older brother, Jesus, and realize he wants to share that birthright, that, uh, that inheritance, that blessing that, that God had bestowed on him to share with his siblings. And so we have Esau making a very stupid decision. And we too can make stupid decisions if we don't look at our eternity and where we're going to be when we stop breathing on this earth. And then later on, when their father, Jacob, was, was approaching death, and a father was supposed to, in their culture, bring the family in, and the oldest would get a double blessing, the others would get a blessing, but the oldest would get a double blessing. And you see, Jesus wants to give us a blessing. He got a double blessing, more than double, as a matter of fact. And he wants to bless us. There's a blessing that the father talked to Abraham many years before that. And you see, Jacob then did something because... He wanted that blessing. So him and his mom can come up with a plan to deceive his father, who was blind, couldn't see. So Jacob ended up with the blessing. You can read it all in Genesis, those few chapters that deal with it. And so Esau really gets upset when he finds out the blessing has gone to Jacob because he gets a secondary blessing, but he doesn't get the main one. And so this is what he said in verse 36 of Genesis 27. Esau said, isn't he rightly called Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. Now, yes, he deceived him the second time, but the first time... Esau was a dumb one. He sold it for a bowl of soup. Then he goes on. He says, he took my birthright, and now he's taking my blessing. And it's interesting. He's blaming Jacob for his stupid act of giving the birthright. But Jacob was guilty of stealing his blessing. And he says, now he's taking my blessing. Then he asked, his, and he's talking to his dad here, haven't you received any blessing for me? And Isaac answered Esau, what possibly do for you, my son? So we have a situation where there isn't a value. Esau didn't put a value on his birthright. And as a result of that, he opened himself up to deception working in his family. I believe he, he's the one that laid the foundation by doing what he did in the first act with the birthright. 
he gave up the blessing because of his, his actions. So let's look at the birthright just a little bit. It, it involved many things. This is Old Testament, but it says the father's firstborn was considered the beginning of his strength. So when the father um, gave the birthright to his oldest son, it was as if the father's strength was being given down to the next, the oldest boy. He ranked the highest after his father. And in the absence of his father, which was probably death, he had the authority over his brothers and sisters. We know that from Genesis 27, 37, because when Isaac answered Esau, this is what he said, I have made him Lord, speaking of course of um, Jacob, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants and I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So he gave him with that blessing, he, he gave him, or pardon me, with that birthright, he, he, he now received the birthright, he now received the blessing and with that, he became Lord over what family was left, and all his relatives were his servants, and there was a blessing of grain and new wine, which has to do with prosperity. So that's what happened when he gave it over. Now, the blessing was given to the firstborn with some exceptions, where a younger sibling, where some young exceptions, some younger siblings received that. For example, when Jacob blessed Joseph's sons, he gave the blessing to the younger, but that's a different message for another day. But that was an exception. And so the blessing in Abraham's descendants was particularly important because God started, I'm sorry, he stated to Abraham that from his descendants, the Savior of the world would come. So through Abraham, there was a lineage down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the blessing followed the path to which were Jesus' ancestors, and Jesus was a descendant of Judah who had received Jacob's blessing. You'll find that all in Hebrews 7, verse 14 in the New Testament. So we know that that blessing that was given is coming down. It came down Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, and uh, who was also called Israel, down in through there, and no, who was also called Isaac, pardon me, and it came down all the way through to Jesus Christ who was born because his parents came from the tribe of Judah. It's not. And so we want to look at the New Testament about the firstborn, and that's Jesus. He's our elder brother, the Bible says, and in, in a few places, it says we are really the church, or if you want the family of the new firstborn, Hebrews 12, 23, it says to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And then also he has first rank among his brethren on earth, and he certainly has for those God foreknew in Romans 8, 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then also he has complete authority over his brothers. Hebrews 1, 9, the second part of that verse says, God has set you, speaking to Jesus, above your companions. 
and then also by his resurrection, he is the firstborn from the dead. So Colossians 1.18 makes it clear. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And number seven, he is the ruler over the kings of the earth, Revelation 1.5. And also he is the firstborn of every creature, which means he has authority over all creation. And that's from Colossians 1.15. You can check all those out sometime to see if my references are accurate. I have made mistakes before. Now in Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, there's, I just want to, to start showing you the benefit of the blessing that Jesus wants to pour out on us. My purpose, Paul is saying, that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. He's talking about people he was praying for, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Have you ever run into people say, I just don't understand. You need to get closer to Jesus. He has the rich, he's the full riches of complete understanding. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Jesus, this blessing that he has is he's anxious because he's an honest, fourth-rate older brother that loves his siblings. He wants to give to us complete understanding, solving the mysteries that we have about the God and, and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a tremendous blessing the Lord wants to pour out on us. And so, first of all, God is a family man. He is anxious to have us in our family, his family. He wants to forgive us our sins, which means we have to repent. And somewhere in the archives, you'll find my teaching on repentance. I believe it's called true and false repentance. You need to, you need to listen to that because there needs to be a, a, a seriousness about, about our sin, a seriousness about repentance and receiving forgiveness of the Lord. That teaching will help you. Galatians 3.13. Now this is, this in a way paves a path for me to start explaining to you that there's a promise that has been given that many evangelical Christians are totally ignoring. Please listen. I'm going to base it on scripture and I want you to understand I'm doing this based on a foundation that I was raised in what I know was a good evangelical Christian home. My mom and dad loved us. We were far from wealthy. We were actually quite poor, but we were loved and we had a good home. And you say, the denomination, the church, the denomination that we're part of was a good evangelical fellowship. It still is to this day after many years. I still would say it's a good evangelical denomination. But no one ever taught me that there was a blessing that was mine that I had never heard of. Nobody shared it. They referred to it once in a while, but it was never made clear to me. And so I began to realize as the Holy Spirit began to move on people in the early 70s, the late 60s, I began to realize there was something missing in my life, and thank God for a precious brother. His name was Ron Cackney, who, who taught me 
from the word of God, that there was a blessing from the Father that was sent all the way down from Abraham all the way down through the line to this very day, a blessing that I knew nothing about. Just the name, Holy Spirit. That's all I heard once in a while. So what did Jesus do about this? Galatians 3.13, this is what he had in mind when he was planning to pour out on his people the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung in a tree. So let me stop there for a minute. The curse has to do with sin. Sin will introduce a curse in many situations. The children of Israel constantly, by disobeying the Lord, introduced curses into their lives. And if they didn't listen to the prophets, the curse then was in effect. God's hand of protection stopped protecting them, and a, and a heathen nation would take over and molest them, make them slaves because of that curse of sin. So Jesus came, and he wanted to deal with that curse. It doesn't happen unless you've repented of your sins. I, I recommend that you take that serious, because there are teachers out there today that say oh, the curses are all finished. Wrong, teachers. I'm sorry. It's wrong. Read the last chapter of Revelation. As a matter of fact, if, you're, if you don't want to read the whole chapter, read verse 3, because it's talking about Jesus. When he returns, then the curse will be finished. That's Revelation, the last chapter. Read it sometime, Pastor, before you teach on that again, that it's all over, that curses are finished. Listen to 14 verse now. He redeemed us, what, from our sin, yes. He redeemed us in order that the blessing, there's that word, given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, it's received by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So this blessing is the promise that the Spirit is going to be poured out, and Joel was then quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2 that that has been poured out on all flesh. In other words, it's available to everyone. Everyone on planet Earth is a, is a recipient for the blessing and the promise of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but every human being I've run into has flesh. And so the old King James says, I'll pour it on every Flesh, every being, the newer translations say. And so we need to recognize there is a promise of the Holy Spirit. Now this is how they treated it. Our elder brother wants to take away our sins first. He died in the cross, so he basically paid the price for our sin. We're supposed to be put to death for our sin. But God held off. That's called mercy. He waited, hoping we'd repent. And you see, when John saw Jesus coming in John 1, verse 29, saw Jesus come towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I want to establish the first function of Jesus was to deal with the sin of each human being. And so that's what the cross is all about. He died in my place. He died in your place. If we repent of our sins, he will forgive us our sins. His forgiveness is not just to save us from hell,
but it is preparing us as his temple so he can dwell in us. I'm going to show you that right now. Listen to this. In the previous verse, he announces them the one who saved us from our sins. But now, John the Baptist in Matthew 3.11 introduces Jesus as the one who would baptize us in the Holy Spirit. And then in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, Mark records the same conversation where John the Baptist said, he will baptize, Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 3, the Dr. Luke from Antioch, he said, this Jesus would baptize us in the Holy Spirit because he heard that's what he was quoting John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, verse 33, it's a wee bit different. John, the apostle who wrote that epistle, is speaking after he had baptized Jesus. And he says it this way, the one who sent me, now we know from John 1, verse 6, that was God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And now in verse 33, he says, the one who sent me said to me, the one that you baptized, he is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So it's established that Jesus came to save us, but he came to save us so he could prepare within us a place of dwelling for the Father who is the Holy Spirit. And so I was taught that when you get saved, you automatically get the Holy Spirit. Well, it didn't work for me. I don't care what your teaching is. It didn't work for me. My, my Christian life was lifeless, it was powerless, and I had trouble obeying Jesus because the worldly seemed like more fun than Christianity was, and so I was a mess. I wasn't in a hospital, I wasn't under psychiatric care, I had a good job, I had an excellent wife, good four little boys in our family, and my company was treating me good, I had to give me a car, I and my life was a mess. It wasn't a mess financially. It wasn't a mess marriage-wise. It was a mess because I had no happiness, no joy. I was empty of something. And so when that brother talked to me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit many years ago, around 1970, he talked me all about it. He showed me from Scripture, from the book of Acts, that it's a second work of the Lord. He wants to save us, but there's another step he wants to take which doesn't necessarily have to be at the same time. I guess it could be if you had the faith, but remember one of my previous verses in Galatians 3, it says, by faith we receive the promise of the Spirit. And so we have this situation in Acts chapter 8. I just want to show you that it's not just something that happens at conversion. Acts chapter 8, the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. They sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Listen, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. You don't baptize unbelievers. Baptism at that time was a baptism of repentance. They were Christians. They were disciples, but they did not have the Holy Spirit. What are you going to do with that if you've been told that you automatically got it when the scripture says maybe not 
Then look at Acts 19. Oh, I need to go back to that for a second. Samaria is 52 kilometers from Jerusalem. So the elders are in Jerusalem. They sent, Peter, they sent for Peter and John in Jerusalem. Takes two days to get there. You can't walk 50 kilometers in a few minutes. Two days to get there, two days to get back. So a minimum of four days from when they were baptized or when they were, and when they were prayed for for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so now we have Acts 19. Paul and this is disciples at Ephesus. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why would Paul ask that question? If everybody got the Holy Spirit when you get saved, why would he ask that question? If anybody should know about when you receive the Holy Spirit, he should have known. First generation Christians. Did you receive? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So how can you have faith for something you've never heard of? So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So here we have a situation where these people are called disciples. He ran into disciples in Ephesus. And they needed, to be, they needed to receive the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself the question, why did Paul ask that question when they're already disciples? Now, some people might take a scripture from 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. When the perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And so they say, see, the perfection was, was first of all, when the, when the last apostle died. But that's been so, there's so much history that says the church grew. For 400 years it was grown until Constantine got saved and started to reverse things. The church grew. And it grew by signs and wonders. Many apostles were dead. Two or three probably generations later, it's still growing. What's the perfection? The perfection is love. Because the 1 Corinthians 13 has to do with love. Don't take it out of context. And 1 Corinthians 13 is not talking about the scriptures. It's talking about love. And what about love? God is love, it says in 1 John twice. God is love. Jesus is an exact representation of God, it says in Colossians. And when Jesus returns, then the gifts will be finished. Tongues will be still. And we won't need knowledge anymore because we have the knowledge of heaven now. So when perfection comes, which is Jesus himself, the love, the per Jesus is called the perfect sacrifice. When he returns, the imperfect will disappear. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So when Jesus returns, that was what will happen. So Father, you have blessed us, Lord God, 
Many, many of us have already received that promise. Many of us, Lord, have been benefited from. We've got new light. There's something within us that is a spark to it. There's something within us that's excited about being a Christian. There's something in us that hates sin. We love you so much we hate anything that would separate us. So, Father, we do thank you in the name of Jesus. I pray that those listening will receive in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please visit our website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.